0: I don't know. I just feel like comedians kind of lecturing working class people about left wing liberalism is like uh, like being lectured about veganism by like Ronald McDonald or something.
1: It's a theme. The Stand up diversity
2: podcast. Welcome to the podcast that celebrates the contribution of diverse people to British stand-up comedy past and present.
1: I'm Sophie Quirk.
2: And I'm Ollie Double. So, who have we got on the podcast today, Sophie?
1: We're talking to the wonderful Kai Samra, and this conversation took place over Zoom in June 2022. We talk about Kai's work generally, but in particular, the show Underclass, which is available on Amazon Prime as part of their Soho Theatre Live series. It's a great show, and in it, he talks about lots of things, but includes his relationship with his family, his experience of being a working-class performer in the predominantly middle-class stand-up comedy industry, um, and also his experience of homelessness. And Kai. Also also touches on an interview he did for the media outlet Vice, where he interviewed the far right activist Tommy Robinson.
2: Wow, that's a lot. Let's, let's go over to Kai and hear what he has to say. My name's
0: Kai Samra. I'm a stand comedian. I think I started performing in early 2018, late 2017.
1: Yeah. And have you been performing continuously since then?
0: Yeah, I pretty much like a full time job, I'd say.
1: Great. So it became a full time job quite quickly. Well, oh no, I think
0: I was from the first gig, I think I was getting pretty much most nights for like straight away. So it felt like a full-time job, even though know? I wasn't getting paid. So not a very good job, but I mean, the hours were terrible and the pay was nothing, but still a job.
1: Yeah, wow. So so it took off really fast. So we ask everyone about their origin story. So when you're asked about your origin story as a stand-up, what's your tale?
0: Uh, when I was actually much younger than I am now, so when I was about 17, 18, uh, I was at a place called Centrepoint, it was like a youth home shelter and uh, they were like what do you want to do and I kind of so I did an Amazon special and I kind of glossed over that quite quickly and I kind of say I went straight from doing stand-up into that uh, but my next show I'll get into the details a little bit more um, I actually was doing music before that uh, but always into the arts I always felt like rightly or wrongly probably wrongly I always felt like a lot of people at Centerpoint mm-hmm. always think of the arts as like some sort of meritocracy like you know, if you don't have a degree or like so you can get into like music or acting and, you know, you kind of have this idea that you're like, oh, you know, it's some sort of meritocracy where it doesn't matter what university you go to or what your parents do or how rich you are, you can get up there and then you very quickly realise that is not true. But uh, yeah, that's the kind of things that you believe in.
1: I mean, we're going to talk uh, later a bit about your show Underclass, but has that been sort of a thrust of quite a bit of your stuff? Is it something you started talking about earlier, I guess is what I'm asking, but
0: no that that experience yeah so that experience was something I actually never told anybody like even ex-girlfriends or mates or anything I was always quite embarrassed about it to be fair so like when it started I got signed fairly quickly to like a big management company and no one knew about it and uh, I kind of didn't want anyone to know so like mostly my comedy was just about sort of race or just like funny observational stuff and then I think when I got picked up by Soho Theatre to do the show they kind of you know, I had a dramaturg and they were telling me about, you know, what makes the show interesting. And then it was almost like, it's less like a comedy director, more like a therapy session where they're going, oh, what was your background? What about this? And then I kind of told about that. And there's a few stuff, I, you know, there's actually stuff in the next show that I never mm. told anybody about that. It's, it's just really weird that you, there's certain things you talk about in a show that you don't even tell, like you've close friends. Then you, you feel completely fine selling a group of like thousands of strangers. <laughs> <You know? laughs> putting on an amazon or a big international platform yeah so they kind of pushed me to talk a little bit more about that
1: that's really interesting so like was it sounds like there was or you felt and and correct me if I'm wrong you felt kind of pressure to pretend to be Uh. one of the middle class kids or something or (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: definitely yeah no definitely didn't feel pressure I think it was more um so there was quite a lot of things I wanted. like obviously the show. There's I did a vice uh little vice interview where I met Tommy Robinson, like the EDL and things like that. And then just trying to think about what things that I could talk about that not a lot of not a lot of other people could. Um so you know, like when I was a kid, I used to sleep like rough outside So theater and then went from there to like to obviously being produced by So Theater. So obviously I felt like that was quite of a um a thing I kind of wanted to talk a bit about. And also the other thing as well is that I felt because I did music before I felt like you were always pushed into not pushed but you're always encouraged to try and be different from everyone else and try and think about like become slightly introspective and think what is a sort of story that I can talk about that not a lot of people can't so I definitely thought I'd bring that into doing stand-up and try and do material that I don't think anybody else can talk about yeah so I think that's why uh, I uh, talked about it in my show but it was kind of funny because actually the last show people kind of take that away from it but I actually only mentioned it. It probably takes like two minutes of the show. It's not the whole show. Um, I think I talk about it a lot more on the next one. But um, yeah, so in my head, it didn't really seem like uh, I was talking about it that much. But it was just funny. That was the
2: takeaway from it for a lot of people. Mm. That That leads very nicely to the next question. I mean, to some extent, you've already answered this. But um part of the purpose of this podcast is to really celebrate the artistic contribution of diverse comedians to the craft of stand-up and the art of stand-up with that in mind what do you think makes your work distinctive in terms of subject matter material performance style and so on
0: well I think I think we were talking a bit bit before about craft um so I feel like with me before I do a show before I do a bit of stand-up like genuinely I'll think what is something or one idea that I don't think anyone else could talk about? Not that nobody else could talk about, I'm sure other people have had similar experiences, but uh, something that not a lot of people would say or talk about. So I kind of briefly mentioned like the next show, I talk about how my granddad met Malcolm X and Smedic and they fought like the right, the far right. And uh, he went to this Gurdwana and Smedic and he helped like the Sikh community. And I think, yeah, great, I'll do stand-up about that because not a lot of people are going to nick that or steal that. Or And it's interesting. And I think that was the thing as well. I think everyone's got their own personal tastes. And I think I, I never really I never really was into comedy that much growing up. And I always felt like watching Mock the Week and stuff or watching people who like, don't want to mention any names, but people where you kind of think, oh, this is quite boring. Like, oh, like, I don't really care about what you're talking about. So I felt almost that came first. And I feel like once you grab audiences' attention and they're thinking, oh my God, this is a great story. Then the, you're, they're already hooked and they're like emotionally invested and it's easier to make them laugh. Especially during an hour. Like I think an hour is quite a long time. I think like YouTube's destroyed my attention span. So I think I'm like, I can't concentrate for more than about a minute. So I feel like I constantly need um, a lot. And I kind of get told off a lot about that. Because I think in my next show, there's like a lot of things I talk about. Like a lot. Um, and I remember even with the last show, it was obviously about my brother. It was about sort of my mum. It was about Center point. It was also the Tommy Robinson thing, you know. And then people were like, oh, these are like four different shows in one. And I was like, no, like let's just cram everything in. And also I don't I don't want to be one of these communities who go to Edinburgh every year. So I think like I only wanted to do it once and then got funded again to do it with Said. So, so I think this this next show will definitely be last. So I don't I don't need any more stories for other shows. So just, just cram it all in this one and be fine.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I—that's I, the second time you told me about the thing about Malcolm X, and I'm still kind of reeling from it. That's an extraordinary thing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's weird. Not a lot of people know that, but yeah, it was like six days before he was assassinated. He came to like Smeth, which is crazy. It's crazy to think like I don't know the, sort of Malcolm X being like, right, we need to fight the racism in the Midwest, and everyone being like, what Alabama, and just be like, no, Smethick, <laughs> and then just go yeah, back yeah. to Birmingham, like, yeah. and uh, doing it. And he, yeah, like I said, he got assassinated like five days, five six days after. So it was like the last place he went to it was almost like meeting my grandparents and like the Sikh community in Birmingham so I think like and not a lot of people know that that's quite an in, like incredible story so like it's a little bit about that a little bit about my granddad as well.
2: They, they maybe just got the Birminghams mixed up because <laughs> there's one yeah, in that, Alabama as well. Alabama,
0: Birmingham Midlands like yeah. yeah, this flight is a lot longer
1: than
2: I thought. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. But but another thing that you said earlier, which I think really interests me. Uh, I mean, you know, I, the the show was amazing. Um, uh, you, you know, your show on Amazon probably. If if people listening to this haven't watched it, go and list go and watch it now. It's brilliant. But one of the things that's really interesting is what what you said is that you know you you shared things that you barely shared with anybody, and you're going to do that in your next show as well. Yeah. And I think that that's something about stand-up, isn't it? That it's weirdly, there's a thing, whether it's, you know, your sexual proclivities or, you know, embarrassing thing that's happened to you, things that you wouldn't share with a stranger on first meeting them. If you've got a hundred strangers in a room, fine
0: yeah it was weird i think that was definitely something maybe a bit of a negative as well because i think like when i was doing those shows it's quite uh an intimate i feel like theater and comedy is quite an intimate environment it feels like quite a safe space and then obviously i think once you start getting reviews and you start seeing yourself in the guardian and the evening standard and they're like talking about quite personal things out in like on the in like the paper i felt like a bit yeah i had like you know super anxiety inducing and especially obviously being on Amazon obviously then everyone can kind of see it but at the end of the day I think I kind of like decompartmentalized myself away from the show and just was like I feel like when I'm writing the show like my craft is I just I just try and take myself away from it and go what would make this good I probably like didn't think about my own sort of like I don't know mental health in that and just thought it's like a great show and then you like forget you have to do it every day and uh, but the, th- the one thing that was really nice like like the response from the show especially the amazon thing like ever since it come came out i get like five or six dms like daily like big big essays of people going like this is the similarity in my life like this is what happened to me like so i'm really really glad i did um instead of just doing like kind of clubby material about going to like weather's beans. and so <laughs> i'm glad i kind of uh told more about like, my life story so.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's really interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, on the one hand, the negative is that that, that, that's one of the weird things about stand-up as opposed to acting, whereas in acting, you're playing a different character and it's a set of experiences you probably haven't had. Whereas in stand-up, it's likely that you have had those experiences and it can be quite hard to to get any kind of distance, especially when somebody else then goes off and puts them in a review or whatever. But on the other hand, that thing of, you know, your job is to make people laugh. So those people who you've had that positive effect on, who are DMing you, that's, that's just a bonus, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. I th- yeah. A hundred percent. It depends on what you want out of art, I suppose. Like, I think, I think for me, like, obviously, you know, I do the comedy store and top secret and places like that, but I think there's like so many comedians out there now. And so, so much comedy, especially when you look on Netflix, I think kind of trying to, st- you know, stand out from the crowd and trying to do things a little bit differently. should be like must be encouraged. And it, it is like really, really lovely when like you get, like dms and people have been through similar experiences because so I talk about a lot of different things so people talk about maybe their family or like brothers or like coming up from Birmingham or like being in private like being in private schools we from working like, like that wasn't me but I talk about it in the show and yeah and so I think that's like really lovely and I always feel like you have more of a following because I feel like there's like they feel there's like an emotional connection there so then they're always like when's your next show like whereas if someone just laughs for an hour it's almost quite easily forgettable um, so I'm kind of glad I'm really yeah I'm really glad I did the show the way it was. is I'm very
2: proud of it and, and it goes back to what you were saying before about I mean you were very sort of um, um, diplomatic about it but uh, it goes back to that thing of you know one of the critiques of a lot of modern stand-up is that it's just stuff you already know about making toast or whatever it is yeah, yeah. but you know when somebody's telling you about their experiences you know some quite dark stuff about what happens their relationship with their brother and you know yeah, yeah. The, you know, having homelessness and even just you know, um, experiencing racism in the comedy industry. Those things are things that not everybody's experienced. So you're yeah, showing mass- something important.
0: Massively. And I think one thing that really helped me was, um, I remember Michaela Cole did like an Edinburgh talk about her experiences and stuff. And like, it just, it, it was like someone was, it just like, I, I watched that talk. like It's like an hour long. I probably watched it like 20 times. And it was just like nice hearing someone that is now successful going from a similar background to you talking about like these traumatic things that they've been through because at the end of the day it is quite difficult to talk about that and I'm talking about it a lot in my second show and I'm probably I'm probably going to get kind of probably going to be the end of my career because I talk quite specifically about like a two management companies and kind of what they did like so what my, my like my story is, like to stand up it's quite it's quite insane when you're in, like, I've never really been in an environment where like it's exclusively white and middle class like, obviously every like I've never met I've met like had meetings with dozens of management companies i've never met there's never there's not one person of color that works in any of them and especially production companies and stuff my edinburgh show was before the whole blm movement as well so i think that was like a obviously not enough but there was a slight seismic shift and people became aware of it but it was like pretty bad like before that it's weird how things have just changed quite quickly or like obviously some management companies are like, right we need like they Would have huge management companies would never have a Black Act or an Asian Act. And they're like, oh, they're literally that week, they're like, right, we need them as quick as possible. And like it was um, yeah. So I think I think it's important for me to like, talk about stuff like that. And I think I've been super lucky. And so I've had a I like a really weird experience. Like, obviously, even going to Edinburgh, like the I would never have afforded to ever go to Edinburgh in like a million years. And I managed to get like funding. And it was a person of colour that was like on the chair, like chair of the board that came and just had my back. I could like everything I've had, like money wise and work wise has always come from like uh, commissioners from like the Amazon commissioner. It's never come from an agent. It's never come from anything. So in a way, I feel quite lucky in those just people have actually reached out to me that probably shouldn't have reached out to me, you know, and had my back a lot. And have had like mentors. And I know there's probably a lot of people in my I know I know for a fact there's a lot of people in my position that. Probably like more talented that like should be better. And that I probably don't have the mentorship that I have that I kind of cultivated and sort out as well. I think it's like a really, really sort of very, very sort of biased industry, a very tricky industry as well. If you don't have people having you back. So, yeah, I talk about that a lot in my next show. Basically, as a result of the last show, I had like a, you know, BBC pilot and like, um, you know, Amazon special and like a book deal and stuff. So, I feel like, and I'm not greedy. I don't want to be famous or anything. I just wanted a certain amount of money. And I was like, <laughs> right, so now I feel like I want to do, well, kind of similar to what sort of like Malcolm X vibes and my granddad vibes. And was like, well, I want to do stuff I'm proud of and I want to make a difference. You know, you kind of want to, I don't know, you want to look on your life and your career and do stuff that you're proud of. You know, making like tangible changes in that department is like something I care a lot about now.
2: So you're dealing with difficult subject matter in a way, you know, you're talking about racism, you're talking about class prejudice, you're talking about the sort of inequalities in society, but you're also talking about upsetting things that have happened to you in your own life. As a comedian, what are the kind of challenges of tackling such difficult issues in your comedy?
0: I think it's, it's actually a lot easier than people think because, I feel like with jokes, it's essentially just like tension Then a punchline is just a release of that tension. So if you talk about those things, there's two things that happen. One, it makes you a lot more vulnerable. So I feel like people warm to you more and then there's a tension that's built up and then you release it with a punchline. It's a lot easier when you talk about those a more like traumatic stuff that's directly happened to you, like personally, because no one can have a go at you. It's not like I'm talking about, you know, the Holocaust or something like that that creates tension. Like I would never do that. Like I would do, do things that is obviously personal to me, and that's authentic and, and truthful. Especially with with an hour show, you kind of not do it gratuitously, but you know, just like do a sub sort at the end. But you want to like, you know, bring the audience in, and I always feel like it's like when it's your, when it's a friend or something, and, and they're telling you something quite personal. You obviously like as a friend you're like you're more open um like, oh, you know there's like a difference in vibe or atmosphere and I feel like you can feel that in the show and yeah I like that and I like doing that in an hour show as well because I feel like in a, in a nightclub people don't want to hear I would never I would never do that in a club or like a the comedy store um even though I talk about the Tommy Robinson thing in like my club set that is quite funny <laughs> but it's uh, <laughs> also it's a bit it's a bit different so like yeah I definitely would never do it in like a top secret I think with Edinburgh and an hour show like I think uh, it's always quite nice, I think. Well, I always like it when other acts do it, so.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that point you make about, you know, coming across like a friend is really true. One of the things that really struck me about mm-hmm. watching the the uh, Amazon special is you're so likeable. Yeah, you, know, you, you. Wa- you, you know, you what you you know watch and go, yeah, I, I totally like him in my friend group, you know, yeah, and you. That, uh, but, but that's, that's it.
0: Quite, it, Sorry, go Well,
2: I was just going to say, it's weird because you're talking about such difficult things, but through that, you maintain this positive energy
0: yeah it's kind of funny because like I uh it's that's weird you say because a lot of people said that I always use the word likeable I, like my girlfriend I was just like I, I said so I told her like not to, not to watch like the show or anything or like see me on stage I feel like a bit of a boundary and then I was like everyone else says I'm likeable she's like really
1: yeah
0: <laughs> I'm like believe yeah but it's uh <laughs> yeah I take that as a compliment because to be fair like I do kind of feel that it's kind of funny because even when I do gigs and like I don't want to sound like it sound like a bit of a generalization or anything, but quite like Brexity Tory places in Britain. There might be like an all-white crowd that are like quite Tory voting, who are like, you know, who who I'll do with 20 minutes set talking about Tommy Robinson, but they're always like, I always feel like they quite like me. And like, I don't know, they're always on boards. And it was like you feel like you're judging the audience and you going, they're gonna hate me. But then like, then you know, they never really do. I've never really had that much for a host, like I've never really been hacker. I don't I've never really, I don't, I don't wanna be like one of these controversial comics. <laughs> like, he's just like, God, like, audiences are ruining comedy. I'm like, I don't <laughs> really like that. I don't really particularly want to be like that.
1: When you're on stage, you are so warm, oh, if nice. you see what I mean. And, and you've, you've spoken about the fact that um, that you, it breaks down some barriers with audiences when it's clear that you yourself are, are sort of really sharing your own experience yeah. and that you're being honest with them. Yeah. And I, definitely. Yeah,
0: yeah i I agree that and also the other thing as well is like i never went to go see theater like when i was younger the fact that people have paid like 20 pounds to come see me talk for an hour like i feel like genuinely really privileged and i genuinely feel like so thankful i'm just like and everyone's like, because I remember when I started doing Soho Theatre, I used to always be like, thank you guys so much for going. And everyone's like, you don't need to say thank you. Like, people go to the theatre and they spend that money. I'm like, you spent like 15, 20 quid to come see me. Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, so, and I always like, don't want to lose. I'm still, I'm doing work in progress at Soho Theatre. And it's still like 10, it's like 15 quid. And not only that, it's like an hour of people's lives. Like, people get in the tube there. Might have to take a babysitter. Like, it's a super privileged position. and like, especially now, like, you kind of compete with Netflix and they could just stay at home. And I still, I genuinely always feel like, almost, like, can't believe that people pay money to come see like <laughs> me or, like, theatre or just theatre in general. And I feel like, I don't want to sound too, like, i'm trying to be a nice guy away but i genuinely am like grateful when people come and stuff like and i don't want to ever lose that i don't think is
1: it like is, is it it's part of that warmth is it about the fact that you really appreciate this as a kind of two-way yeah,
0: 100%, I, yeah yeah definitely and i feel like especially with stand-up as well like it's as much to do with the audience as it is with me as well because you need them to laugh and create a good atmosphere it's weird because i did music before and i probably didn't I didn't really care about the audience I was doing me because I was it was quite like loud and I was just like, oh, this is just us, and we're just like making a racket comedy. It's like a relationship where I say a thing, and I'm expecting you to that, and it's like we're kind of sharing a thing. But yeah, honest to God, it it is that's that thing of like, you know, just I, I don't always feel bad. Like, so even for my next show, uh, you know, I've done a lot of, like allocated tickets for people who are like from working-class areas or who are like black Asian, like. Because like, I understand, like 15 pounds or like 20, 25 pounds is a lot of money, you know, for like, that's how much the tickets are. Especially with like, you know, the like cost of living, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money, especially just to see someone talk for an hour. So I always do genuinely like feel really, really grateful. And like, that's probably, I think that's probably why I come across. I feel like, maybe that's one of the reasons why I probably come across one because I genuinely I, like and I genuinely am I feel like I'm really trying to be like oh this is I'm such a nice guy don't <laughs> this is too subtle but it's a genuine thing like it's a lot of money like like I said I think because I wouldn't do it or I wouldn't when I was if I you know like if I wasn't doing stand-up I'd be like 25 quid's a lot of money you know I wouldn't mind paying 25 quid to see like Chris Rock but like to see someone you've not really you know yes yeah, so I do feel grateful. And then um, you mentioned
1: a couple of times you regretted sort of him more detail about how this happened that um your show underclass was funded supported by Soho Theatre
0: yeah so we got so um, how did
1: all of that come about
0: I was quite lucky in the sense that when I started doing comedy things happened quite quickly
2: mm-hmm. so
0: like two or three months after my first gig um I think Paul Chowdhury saw me and I and he was doing arenas and I supported him Within three months, I was in a like, Watford Coliseum area like 3,000 people and it, I like I, I videoed it and it they went like really, really well. So I got signed to the same management company and I feel like um, I've had like a lot of bad luck in like stand-up or like a lot of crazy stuff that's happened that agents haven't given me or, 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 or things like that. But then I do feel lucky about all the things that I have got. And then I always feel like almost like this not like guilt. When I first got signed to my first management company, on the same day, I went into Soho Theatre because I tried to go on their workshops there and they basically didn't put me on. I decided doing workshops there for like Centerpoint kids and stuff. And Josie Long helped me and like, Dane Baptist came and did stuff with Arts Emergency. And I think, I feel like that's like really, really important. I've had a bit of a, because <laughs> I talk about it quite a lot on my next show. And I think a lot of people are like, maybe you shouldn't talk about it. But it was almost like, I kind of had a lot of stuff after Edinburgh and that maybe I should have had stuff that I wasn't told about and then these commissioners like black and Asian commissioners then reached out to me and were like oh actually you should be getting this like maybe your agents aren't actually telling you this and they mentored me so even though I've had that bit of bad luck I've then had that stroke of fortune to have those people and then you realize like there's probably other black and Asian acts or people from working class areas that aren't being treated the same as like the Oxbridge acts and even though they should be like they've they've legitimately achieved more. And then I feel like the onus is kind of on me. And I feel like I'm quite confident as a person to be like, "I oh, like this is wrong. I will happily stand up and, and talk about it and like make some sort of tangible change. And stuff like that just makes me happy. Like, I feel like, like the happiest I've ever been in stand-up was doing those centre-point workshops. And then, like, even at the end of it, like, so they were, like, homeless kids, and then at the end, they're, like, all chipped together and got me a bottle of, like, Prosecco. And I, like, they didn't need to do that. And honestly, it was, like, the happiest I've ever... Like, I was, like, nearly, like, absolutely nearly in tears. And, like, you just... I don't know, you kind of realise, like, if that stuff's making you happy. Like, you know, even again getting, getting the Amazon thing, I, I, it didn't really mean anything to me. It wasn't really, like apart from the money maybe but but the other stuff just is so superfluous i think and like i think making like tangible change like you want to do stuff you're proud of like me doing live the apollo and get a bbc pilot will be nice but like if along the way like i did with the amazon thing like if i got people some center point on the cast and crew and that it kind of gives you another impetus it kind of gives you another onus and like it just makes you almost in a selfish way it makes you feel like happy with yourself and like you just feel better as a person I definitely can't kind of concentrate more on doing stuff like that
1: yeah, so how, can you elaborate on that so you got the centre point people on the casting crew of what of underclass
0: yeah so what I kind of did was sometimes like I mean they have so much money with that stuff so you can kind of go oh I need a director <laughs> and they're like oh they need a fee and then stuff and you can kind of get them on board and like Or you kind of, I mean, I already had the show, but then you'd be like, oh, I need an extra writer to punch it up. And then you basically just get the money and just be like, you can just do what you want. Like, you know, if you want to help me with this, then just kind of give them the money. Yeah, and just like mentoring and stuff like that. And I think, because that's like a big, big thing, especially like comedy, it just seems like an impenetrable industry sometimes and you don't know how things work. And for example, so with that show, I I went to Edinburgh, got five star and four star reviews. I was in Pleasance, had a big management company, was with Soho Theatre, had a Vice thing, was at like Pleasant's Bunker at 7pm, like good time in a prime location. And like not one of the Edinburgh judges came and even saw the show. So like, because people were like, oh, this show is obviously going to get nominated. And it was like, they never came and even saw it, even though they meant to come and see every show. And it's just like, there's so much mystery around it, where it's like, sorry, I don't even know how that's even possible. And when I tell people that, they kind of don't believe me. And it's, it's genuinely true. And you think, hold on, I achieved all that. You know, I don't think it's any sort of coincidence that all of them were privately educated. You know, the Black and Asian acts, and you know, it's just like it just seems very kind of unfair. And then, yeah, so I actually stopped doing the Centrepoint workshops as a result of that because because it just so it seemed a bit I felt like not a fraud, but it's almost I felt like a bit of a fraud telling like homeless people, highly uh, young homeless people, oh, you can do comedy because like actually you can't and you can't afford to go to edinburgh and like the best thing would probably be just, just do social media and get big off that because this industry is like very kind of one sided i feel like everything i've done and to even go to edinburgh and then get the fun and go all so thin and then for them not to come you go i don't know how and to be in like the guardian and like evening standard for and to still not get those things you're like how can i tell you're probably not gonna achieve the things i achieved as quick and so it's yeah it just seems a bit I felt like a bit of a fraud kind of t- telling kids without at least making some sort of tangible change to, to the industry and putting a bit of a spotlight on those things. Then I probably would feel a bit more comfortable doing those things. But yeah, I never felt that comfortable. And I, I always at the end of the workshop. would oh, always kind of just be like, just get big off social media, <laughs> you know, like, because I always feel like all oh, the Black and Asian acts that are big on telly now, like Guz Khan, Mo Gilligan, you know, none of them went to Edinburgh and went, did comedy competitions or go to like Comedy Eight, you know, it was, they just kind of did it themselves yeah i feel like and that's why i didn't want to go to edinburgh again and it's only because i got funded that i was like I might as well do it again <laughs> i feel like I probably was slightly disillusioned by it the well, it strikes
2: me there's it. two just to butt in very briefly it strikes me there's two really interesting things you're describing there one is because you don't fit in with a particular demographic where it's all about kind of good social networks and privilege kind of thing but you know yeah. things you've been passed over but also there's another more positive story to tell about people like paul chowdhury or the people you know the black and asian commissioners who reached out to you or indeed you um making opportunities for people of color because they're getting passed by by the other things
0: 100 and the thing is as well is that it's like nobody well i say nobody a lot of like comedians and people like don't really know how the industry works and don't really know what agents do and and i i was in the same boat as well you know like Yeah, like like I said, I talk about it quite a lot in my next show, and I was like, I don't know if you talk about it because it's quite. It was essentially just like exclusively white management companies. Like I was, like I was meant to get the Amazon special for the first series, and they offered it to me, and like they never told me about it, and were pitching other white acts that all went to Oxbridge. Then the second series came out, and they did it again. They offered it to me again. They were like, my agent just didn't tell me, and was just like, and then apparently, then the commissioner was like took me out for a drink and was like look I'll mentor you like because he just felt bad like he just felt bad that offered it to me and it was like a considerable considerable amount of money and I had like no money at that point obviously like obviously from seeing the Amazon special you know my background and they'd obviously seen my Amazon special because that's uh, sorry the comedy show because that's obviously why they wanted to reach out and give me the special and if the
1: commissioner from Amazon
0: yeah. Then approached I'm, you,
1: directly took you out for a drink.
0: Yeah, and Soho Theatre, and even, like, Ashitala who did The Office, he then took me out he was like, do you do know the BBC have given you a pilot without even seeing a script? And it was probably the first time the BBC had ever done that. Like, this is three years after I was meant to be getting it. But, like, thankfully I've got those things now. But it was only because of just a complete those people just obviously see my show and just having my back and then I feel like I've had that good fortune then I should obviously pass it on so yeah there's been like a lot of stuff like that and it's yeah it's a bit messy as well obviously I I think like obviously the whole BLM thing happened and people being a bit more like uh, scared of those things now but obviously this was 2019 so it was like before lockdown before those things happened but I mean like thankfully I've got those things now so it's fine but it was only because I was just stroke of luck uh, you know like an like an amazon commissioner would never reach out to an act ever you know they'd always go through an agent and the fact that they just reached out to me was like they all did quite telling i think that's why important because i think with like you know people talking about diversity they're almost like oh it's just a box ticky thing that doesn't make a difference and i'm like no if those people weren't box ticked in those in, to get into those positions i wouldn't be where i am now i'd still be at center point even after that edinburgh show and that's scary it's like really really scary and obviously i'm in a decent position now and it's only because of that so people kind of think about it, it's frivolous oh you just get an asian person or a black person as a commissioner. But if those things hadn't happened, I wouldn't. Those people wouldn't have reached out to me directly because they kind of know how the industry is. And like, whenever we talk, it's just like trauma bonding about how the how the industry is. And like, so there is a tangible effect of that because I would literally be at center point right now if it wasn't for that. Even even after the success of the Edinburgh show, so I think like, st- like talking about that stuff is really important. And that's what like art should be about. Like, you want to talk about stuff that makes a difference. And obviously, especially like going back and thinking about my granddad and Malcolm X and all the stuff they did. And you go, God, all I'm doing is just talking about the theatre industry, it's so middle class. Like I was talking about my granddad, he was like, he uh, he goes, he got called like a racial slur in Birmingham and by a group of skinheads and he took his slipper off and chased them all down the road. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I got called a racial slur and I started doing stand-up and I, I did a Guardian article about it. I'm like, so similar, so, so similar. I feel like, you know, it's just not not comparable in any sense but it's uh yeah I think little things like that do make a difference like a tangible difference like the fact that I'd literally be at center point even after that Edinburgh show if it wasn't for that and now like I'm in a position where I've got a BBC part and Amazon thing and that was literally just because of like black and Asian commissioners who had no right to really reach out to me directly so yeah like I said I've had like bad stuff then I've had like a lot of thought like a lot of stroke of fortune I think it's like I feel like it's kind of the duty to kind of pass that on, you know?
1: And it's so good to hear someone talk so kind of openly and articulately about the barriers to the comedy industry being a meritocracy because it is something that you hear a lot, isn't it? And um, something that certainly seems to circulate in the ether is this idea put forward by some comedians generally white and male that um, having any kind of drive for diversity is depriving the people who deserve it
0: yeah yeah
1: place what what would you say to that
0: yeah 100% I I mean I think like I mean that that's the kind of self-evident I think like that kind of I remember even when I was talking to Tommy Robinson he was like I was talking about like lack of diversity and and on you know and he's like and he was like oh Mo Gilligan's doing all right and I'm like, I don't think you realise like Mo Gillen had to get like hundreds of thousands of followers. He had to get Drake to tweet him just to get the same five minutes on Comedy Central that every other Eton other Act got onto without even doing the circuit. I'm like, th- I'm not saying, it's like this, the disparity is insane. Like, you, you know, you mentioned Paul Chowdhury. He can sell out like, Wembley five times and he only got on like Mock the Week. Or like he only got on Taskmaster recently. And, and I, I do think there is a thing where it's the other way as well, where I think, I do think like there's a lot of systemic issues around race and class like for example m- you know my sort of edinburgh experience and stuff and then i do think it can become quite box sticky where they're like i think a lot of comedy people are like right let's just get uh, a woman in a hijab let's just get her really on quickly because that means oh we're not and you go well that's not the same either you just literally pluck some up just to kind of go oh well, like you know there was a production company that got like got there was a big race scandal and like the first thing they did was just go like oh let's just get all like a woman in hijack I, I just cover this whole thing up and I'm like just because that's you can't just you know cover that over just by plucking up random people and just putting them on either so like I said I mean it's the same with anyone you just want it to be a fair meritocracy like you just want to be treated fairly I just that, that's all you really want like I don't want any special treatment but like, just treat me the same as everyone else that's all you kind mm. of, um which is like a very low bar I think you know
1: Oh, you've mentioned a couple of times Edinburgh, and maybe you sound more dubious than some comedians about the idea that doing Edinburgh every year is what you do to get yourself into, you know, the big comedy trade fair and get yourself seen and um, yeah. progress in general. um Can you just say a bit more about that? What are the kind of pros and cons to doing Edinburgh?
0: So, my, so like I said, my my experience of doing Edinburgh was going up with South there, having like it wasn't great. To be fair, I think because like you know, my production team, PR team, management company were like exclusively white. And it was almost like the very big sort of bias that was like happening where I think a lot, a lot of the Black and Asian acts were being very much neglected. And I and I kind of, you know, I, not I get that, but... I feel like maybe if you've been to Eton and you meet someone else who's been to Eton, you're going to have a connection more than someone if you've met me. <laughs> like in the same way that if I meet someone who's been a centre I'm going to connect with them more than somebody who's been to Eton. Like, you know, and if I was in a position of power, I wouldn't help the person that went to Eton. I'd help the person with a centre So, yeah, it was a great time. And it was almost like, I felt like a lot of the stuff came after Edinburgh, like doing Soho Run. I feel like now doing the Amazon thing. But then again, on the other side of the corner, I was fortunate that I got it you know I didn't I wasn't like penniless at the end of it and you know wasn't like out of pocket and probably the only good things that really came out of it were those Black and Asian commissioners watched the show and reached out to me I think this time in Edinburgh you know I was going to do things like not get the award judges to come in and not get reviewers to come in and kind of do something something I don't know I I feel like with a lot of art it's almost like they say the right things but it's nothing tangible I kind of wanted to do something you know like I don't know back in the day even like punk and like music you kind of feel like people were standing for something and doing something genuine you know like making a stand and 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 doing something not like and I felt like there's got to be some sort of thing I could do in that sense like I said because I'm fortunate enough that I'm not out of pocket for it so because I've got it funded so there's got to be some I'm still trying to figure it out I'm not sure what I, I should do but I think probably the the content of the show is quite I don't know, quite punk. I kind of t- I talk a lot about the tr- the stuff that happened and like, well, I talk about being in a band as well. So it's like the mix of like Malcolm X and being in this band and then like talking about the comedy industry and like, yeah, which probably isn't the best of my career because <laughs> you kind of like shouting people out and stuff. But it's, I don't know, you kind of want, I, I want to do something I'm proud of. I think like with the last show, I was just like really proud of it. And I think I w- you just want to do a show that you, you're kind of proud of. So yeah, I am I am looking forward to it. But probably not, not the idea of like going the idea of going anywhere for a month. is just too long. I think just anywhere, even Edinburgh, make it a few days and call it a day. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Could there be a way of navigating yourself through comedy and not doing Edinburgh?
0: Yeah, definitely. I feel like I'm in a kind of a position now where maybe I don't really need to go. I don't really know. I don't know. Like Because the thing is, it's still like. I mean, Frankie Boyle was going for the month and obviously he's huge. So it's it's different. I suppose people do it for different things, right? Like I don't I think it's just the idea of like doing a show on of and doing it every every day for a month and obviously getting hopefully like new fans and stuff like that. Um, as, as opposed to the idea of like getting particular work. Cause I think the other side of the work, like I wanted a factual series, I wanted the you know the chat, the Tommy Robinson and the scripted like pilot. So I'm doing that with like Tiger Aspect, which was my dream production company to work with you know got an amazon special yeah you know, so like the kind of things that all comedians want, like a comedy special and all that like there's things like you know lively parlor i haven't done yet that's probably like one thing i want to do but yeah i think i just just doing a show i'm proud of
1: Actually, that, i feel like that fits with something that you said that really stuck with me um in underclass something you say is um that when you started doing stand-up it started going well really quickly because yeah. you had a purpose
0: yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> that that yeah that that just really chimed so could you say a bit more about
0: uh, yeah well it's kind of funny because I was always like and I'm still like this I'll always say like I'm quite I'm very driven probably through necessity more than anything else like because obviously I, I don't have the luxury of like you know and sometimes you meet agents are like oh this might be a long-term thing in my three or four years and you think I'm done like I would happily quit right now if that was the case I Always gave myself like yearly targets so I always said like I'm gonna get signed to this management company quicker than anybody else has so I'm gonna get my Amazon special quicker than anyone else and stuff that purpose that this probably isn't the answer you want to hear but i just needed the money like and i was just like (laughs) i just wanted that money like obviously i'm doing stuff i'm like proud of i wouldn't do stuff i wasn't proud of it was like that kind of that purpose of like oh if you do this and you work hard enough you will get to this place and i think probably like edinburgh and after edinburgh realizing like oh i actually had all these things and there's these middle management people not telling you certain things that are like i said exclusively white and then when you have a heart to heart with the commissioner they said actually, they were saying that maybe you weren't ready and that they were trying to pitch their other clients instead who, like, they all went to Oxford and Cambridge with. Nobody would would ever tell me that. Like, they had to tell me by going for a drink and, like, mentoring me. Like, you know, that's quite almost, like, incriminating, like, libel thing to say, especially if you're a commissioner. But, you know, very, very thankful and, like, I feel like um, yeah, and I've definitely lost that purpose probably after Edinburgh and then I feel like now, because I know the commissioners and stuff and there's, like, a girl who works at Tiger Aspect called, like, Simon Ferdo. She's, she's like, family to me. Like, I know her parents. I know her nieces. Um, and she directed my Amazon special. And, like, she's doing my show. And she's, like, a person of colour. She, like, really champions, like, people from working class backgrounds. And, like, just, like, one of the best people in the industry. And, like, working with her and hanging around with her and like, Almost finding your tribe of people who are very similar to you is like so, so important. I probably only realized I've only sort of kind of met them like pretty recently. And even like big people like Gus Khan and like Nabil Abdul Rashid, like I'm close to them. And it's because I wouldn't have been close to them when I just started out because obviously they're off in Hollywood and stuff. But, um, you know, they've like had my back a lot like recently as a result of the Amazon thing. So I feel like now in a much better place, and probably have that purpose again. I think, yeah, like I said, I think before, after Edinburgh, it was almost this thing of like, you can be, I honestly felt like you could be the greatest comedian that's ever lived. And if you're from Center point, you will never make it. Just like, that's just the way the industry is. And yeah, I've really always kind of felt that. So honestly, you like lost that motivation. But I kind of feel like now I've kind of regained that kind of purpose a lot.
1: Yeah, thank you.
2: Thank you. Uh
0: feel like it's really boring and not funny. You like, no, 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 no. no. This is
2: about a space to be reflective. So we're not expecting you to stand up down Zoom, you know, because it's not <laughs> that thing. I, I mean, I mean, it's interesting. You were, you were talking about the cost of taking, taking shows up to Edinburgh and the importance of funding because... You know, I, I really like Mo Gilligan. I think he's amazing. And yeah. I think his Amazon, um, his uh, Netflix specials are amazing. Yeah. Um, but I also read his book recently. And he, he, the bit where he was going to go to Edinburgh, and it's only that his vine took off that he didn't, you know. Oh, the, really? Yeah, know yeah. And yeah. and I was thinking, my God, mate, you dodged a bullet there because, you, uh, know, yeah. he could have come, you know, he was working in a clothes shop or whatever, and he could have come home with a ridiculous amount of debt that he could have never paid off and then just been ignored yeah as 100%. opposed to getting retweeted by drake and yeah, yeah. You know, becoming a legend you know
0: 100 percent. and i always had that like my first bit of advice was like don't go to edinburgh right and i think i'd always look at other act- i won't say names but like other acts that i've gone on to really well now and they went to edinburgh and, and like got didn't get great reviews and, and obviously the, the whole conversation was all it is is it's geared to a certain type so for example all the broadsheet reviewers are uh, like middle-class white men usually and uh, or like and women but like all very middle-class and white and and obviously if they see a show which is like an ethnic show they're not going to relate to it as much which is completely true but I feel like with my I was obviously incredibly stubborn I'm like no I'm gonna go get it and it was like to actually think you could go up to Edinburgh to be at Psycho Theatre which is obviously a huge queue like to be at Pleasant to do a show with like Tommy Robinson and like to basically be to get four star reviews in the Evening Standard and five star reviews by those people. And then still for not one, of the judges to come and even even see the show, not even not even score it to get nominated. You're like, I didn't think that was even possible. Like, I, I think they have to come and see every show. And then for me, they're like, oh no, the scout came and saw it and they thought it wasn't great. You think, this is insane. Like, how is that? I, I'm not sure, I, to be fair, maybe there's a reason for it. Maybe it's like, oh a PR person was meant to do that or an agent was meant to do that but the fact that I don't know any of those things and I still don't know it's like it's almost like how can you you're you're basically like I was basically like having these workshops and and saying I flukely supported like Paul trader in two months I got signed to the biggest management company within in three then did an hour show did the Tommy Robinson vice thing my work in progress gone quite picked up by the Birmingham rep, then Soho Theatre picked up, then went to Pleasant's, they got five and four and they won't even come and see a show. So you're like, how is that? How can I like give workshops to kids who are literally homeless and be like, oh, you could, you because they wouldn't even get the funding. Like, it's quite hard to get the, you know, I was obviously very lucky that the Soho Theatre picked it up, but it's impossible. And I feel like, I honestly feel like, like a lot of people, a lot of the advice I had was like, just go to, just like, just do social media. Like it's the easiest thing in the world, even though know? obviously it's very difficult um and I don't do it enough to be fair I felt it was like very disingenuous for me to be like to tell like homeless kids oh you can not have a job and like work and that you know just it's it would be completely disingenuous for me to have those workshops and it, the only point of it would make be like to make myself look good and be further with middle class and people go like, oh that's so good you're doing that that's really like well done but obviously I, I you know I care about those like young people so like I, I don't want to lie to them <laughs> I feel like the only way I can like, make a difference and do those workshops again would, would be to like, you know, make kind of tangible kind of changes and stuff. And like I said, I feel like, you know, I'm not saying I'm like huge now, but I'm in a position now, where probably a better position than I was before to, to do that kind of, you know, to talk about it more and, and those kind of things.
2: So, so who, who, you mentioned that you weren't necessarily that into comedy when you started out, but, but who were your influencers? I mean, what comedians do you think have, have influenced you?
0: Oh, probably the American comics. Like, it sounds really basic, but like, you know, Chris Rock. Chris Rock's probably like, I don't know, it's probably the most basic thing. I feel like a lot of comedians want to go with like really alternative comedians and no one's ever heard of. I'm like, no, the most famous comic ever. <laughs> like, yeah, say so like Chris Rock. But the other thing as well is that I think it was almost quite a good thing that I didn't ever like love any... I don't like really watch a lot of stand-up and I don't even really like love any comedians. I don't know that sounds really bad, but I almost feel it's kind of a good thing. Because I remember there's a lot of comedians who love comedy and then they love James Acaster and then they inadvertently try and become James Acaster or like, you know, you feel that there's a lot of that in comedy where it's like, I remember Stuart Lee obviously got big and then, you know, then everyone started to become like Stuart Lee. And I feel like I did that in a band. Like I was, I like loved the Arctic Monkeys like, and it just, obviously everything I ever made just sounded like a complete Arctic Monkeys rip off. And so I feel like the thing that kind of really appealed to me about standup was like, okay, I can go on stage and just talk about things. It just has to be funny. So I felt like it was a good, kind of a good way that I wasn't, like, obsessed with comedy and stuff. Like, I, I love, like, I love, like, structure and jokes and stuff like that, but it's, I definitely, there were never any comedians that I was ever, like, loved or anything. Like, probably, like, Chris Rock was probably the closest, but Richard Pryor, like, but obviously that's an obvious one. Like, yeah, I, ne- I never was. I, I was almost as excited about the fact, I was like, okay, I can go on stage and talk about anything. I just have to make it funny. Like, that was, just a, it was almost that idea which appealed to me more than, like, I want to be, you know, like, you know, as yeah, I, I, no, no, no. Yeah. I never, uh, I never like obsessed or idolized like any comics
2: really. <laughs> I mean, on that front, do you think there's an issue there with not seeing your own experience reflected in other comedians work?
0: Yeah, that's probably a good point, actually. I think, um, yeah, that's the, yeah, you probably hit the nail on the head. I probably didn't, I probably didn't see that or there wasn't anybody that was kind of talking about things I really kind of cared about. Or it was like, yeah, or it was almost like like dising. I don't know, I always felt like, you know, I remember like watching kind of like Russell Howard and then kind of just being like, you know, and then kind of doing those things and kind of talking about activism and stuff, but not really doing anything about it. And I kind of talk about in this show, you know, like, so obviously I talk about some of the stuff that like management companies have done. I don't know, I just feel like comedians, Kind of lecturing working class people about left wing liberalism is like uh, like being lectured about veganism by like Ronald McDonald or something. It's like, <laughs> How can you be part of this industry? Like I feel like also so like, I don't know like with those communities you think your management company hasn't got a personal colour in the entire thing. Like you know you're talking so much about the tour you know like you know I, I, there's a saying I can't remember who says it but it. know i feel like the line between good and bad doesn't lie between like political parties or country lines or religions like it lies between the hearts of like every single person like for people to go the tories are bad and you think well why are they bad it's because they have their own self-interest they don't really care about other people and that could be targeted at anyone and like anyone can fall into that trap and i think there's like a lot of comedians i don't want to say names but really go after the tory part or like really go after like racism and stuff and their management companies and production companies just exclusively why you think you've not even Like, that's something that you've actually got a bit of power, but, like, your jokes are not going to change politics, really. Like, but you're in a position of power, and you could easily go to a management company, like, you know, if you're Russell Howard, I'm sure you could go, I think we probably should have one black or brown person working here, or, like, working on the show or something. And then I think for me, like, I always kind of wanted to make, like, tangible change, like, bring people from centre point, you know, like, you know, just give them money, really, and just, like, be like, I want them to, you know, like I always said with the Tiger Aspect, the BBC pilot, it was like I wanted there to be like schemes where people from those backgrounds could get like money more importantly but also credits and get them on the road to like getting a career and stuff because I think that's really important I think like a lot of people in point obviously a lot of them want to get into the arts because it just seems like oh that's the way you know because I was always ambitious so I didn't ever want to I wanted to be rich you know even though I was from that background I wanted to like that would be rich but i just like enough money to like not have to worry about money and stuff uh you know it's it's good to kind of open up those avenues for for those kind of people
2: and like make
0: tangible sort of change
2: what do you think needs to change for the comedy industry to become more diverse
0: i feel like they're very very simply it just needs to be more people are coming in positions of power. And that's all the way through the chain. So, I think, like, for, so for everything I've got, so I've, I've, I've said this, so like, all the way through my entire stand up career, like, I'm done all right, right? Like, and I've, the, like, the whole time I've done stand up, and obviously I've, I've got a lot of stuff. I feel like I'm financially in a good place. And I've never had a penny from an agent. And that's because every management company is exclusively white and everything's come from commissioners. So, like, everything literally, Everything. Pretty sure I'm gonna be able to Well, probably I shouldn't say this. Like, because I'm maybe not, but maybe we go there. But like the next few is all right. Frankie Ball. It was the commissioner that reached out to me. Like the, uh, you know, the Amazon special was the commissioner. Soho Theatre. It was the woman that was chair of the board, who's like a, d- a dame, who's mixed race, who is like so big and uh, owned Millwall, and like was the first woman and person of color at the FA who did the kick it out racism campaign to reach out to me and get me those things. The BBC pilot, everything's always come from someone who who it was always the, B. it was basically, I think with like management companies, they don't need to be diverse. There's no one telling them they need to be diverse. It's the same with production companies as well. But obviously like with the BBC and Channel 4, they have to I feel that like there's more of an onus. They have to be diverse. There's, commissioners need to be diverse i don't think it's any coincidence to think there's a management company's never given me those things and it's always been those people that i've had that shouldn't have reached out to me and gave and made sure i had those things that's not really that's not a coincidence so i feel like they just need it's just there needs to be more sort of working class people especially working class people of color in just all through the chain of management companies production companies and commissioners
1: Thank you. Something I I else that this has just really come up a lot in what you've been talking about is the importance of, firstly, people reaching out like that. So people giving opportunities yeah. um, where they deserved, but also you've kind of described that as mentoring. At yeah. times, and one of the things that, I mean, you've spoken quite a bit about this, but the, the impact of your working life as a comedian on your personal life um, can be quite huge. Yeah. Um, and you've mentioned kind of, so you were encouraged by the sound of it for, for sort of artistic reasons to talk about experiences in your life that have been quite difficult in your show and then you're talking about that every night on stage did anyone ever did anyone ever flag with you you know if you if you open this kind of words you are going to have to deal with it a lot
0: yeah no one did mention that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I me like, I I well I well, if they had, I wouldn't have done it. And I'm glad I did it. So, and, you know, because obviously everything I'm getting now is obviously because of that. And I'm sure if I did an hour talking about aeroplane food, it wouldn't have probably, I wouldn't have got the same opportunity. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of glad. And I think, yeah, I think I'm lucky. Like, even with like sense point and stuff, they always check it. You know, I feel like, I think I'm very, you know, very lucky. I think I've got good people around me and stuff and, you know, make sure I'm all right. And I think I'm quite good at like putting a line between like comedy and my personal life. The other thing as well is that I felt like all the stuff about point was like quite a long time ago. So it was about 10 years ago. But I think talking about the brother and stuff and like, my mum was obviously very, very like super, super, super tough, especially that being like in all the papers and stuff. Um, but, you know, go big or go home. Yeah, you know, know, make a good show or don't. That's what I kind of feel like. So I'm kinda yeah, I'm definitely
2: kind of did that. So Sophie, what would your takeaway from this episode be?
1: Oh, do you know? It was really interesting to hear Kai talking about how he has or would opt out of some of the traditional routes of progression. So for example, although he has done Edinburgh a couple of times, he's done that in the context of being funded. And he's very dubious, I think, about the idea of, for example, taking an unfunded uh, month of shows up to Edinburgh and coming back in enormous debt. And conversely, really positive about online routes in like TikTok. So yeah, that's that's my main takeaway in lots of different ways, I think. Um, Kai is talking about a less traditional route in to the comedy industry,
2: and he, I mean, he talks a lot about the challenges of, of being a person of color from a working class background and having been, you know, obviously homeless at, at a time, and he sort of has this thing about not wanting to, to do. Uh, comedy workshops at Centrepoint anymore which is really distressing
1: yeah I mean it's really sad to hear him say that but you can be the greatest comedian that's ever lived and if you're from Centrepoint you won't make it and particularly from someone whose pathway in has been exactly that that's just really heartbreaking to hear
2: it is and I I think you know the point of this podcast is to promote diversity in the comedy industry so if you're you know out there and you're thinking of starting comedy please don't be put off by that I mean the challenges Kai was describing are very real, but we want comedy to be more diverse and that means encouraging people. So go out there and do it and be brilliant and make it and make comedy more diverse.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, at the same time, um, everything that is said there is true. Um, and it's, you know, I, I can understand why lots of working class people working in the culture and creative industries Are really angry.
2: Yeah, it's the poshification of the arts, which feels like a deliberate government strategy. Or Um, at
1: least it could be reversed by government strategy that doesn't really seem to be forthcoming.
2: Yeah, and a lot of it's just to do with, I mean, you know, when people are interviewed about it who are from a very privileged background, they say, well, it didn't help at all that I went to eat and to become an actor and you go well it probably did because you know if if the acting wasn't going so well mum and dad could probably help out a little bit more easily than if you came from a super poor working class background for example
1: yeah exactly ollie what stuck with you about the episode
2: well, for me, the key thing, really important point that Kai makes here and talks about in, in various different contexts is the importance of people of colour in the gatekeeper roles mm. in the industry, breaking protocol to go out of their way to make sure that he got offered the things they felt he deserved. And, well, for a start, the fact he <laughs> that he hadn't been offered them when he should have been, disgusting. Secondly, the the fact that people kind of broke protocol to to make sure that those things happened for him brilliant and that's why it's super important it's not just about who's on stage yeah diversification needs to happen at every level and you know there need to be diverse people in you know commissioning editors and comedy agencies and so on
1: yeah absolutely
2: Thanks for listening to the Stand Up Diversity Podcast, produced at the University of Kent with support from the Partis, and Co-Produced Research Fund, hosted by Oliver Double and Sophie Quirk, editing and
0: music by Anki Dams, so you're telling me. A like and subscribe it's not an obvious subject but that's a thing, thing. it's
2: a thing.
0: thing to the standard diversity podcast